0: This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, September 11th, How Do We Respond? Recorded, September 23rd, 2001, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in
1: Eugene, Oregon.
2: Normally, uh, at the Center, we don't get involved in politics. Uh, I think it's dangerous for a spiritual organization to get too embroiled in passing political conflicts a genuine spiritual organization has a different mission a different goal and that's a long-range education of humanity and history has shown us when religious organizations have uh become subordinate to local political goals or political movements they're very easily corrupted and uh, sometimes then they turn out to be uh you know part of the problem and not part of the solution so we try to avoid uh, getting embroiled in passing political conflicts And uh, we don't have any particular political persuasion here, and everybody's welcome if you're a Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, whatever. And we want everybody to feel welcome no matter what your politics are, uh, up to a point. If you're a Nazi, we have to talk about that.
3: uh,
2: However, uh, political organizations can't uh, stand completely above politics. Politics is part of life. And especially in times of great crisis, it becomes, uh, uh, I think, the duty to address it, not just to pretend that it's not happening. And I think we are now uh, in a time, or potentially in a time, of great crisis. So let's just take a quick review of events. On September 11th, uh, 2001, there was an attack on the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York and the Pentagon. Our government has subsequently uh, named Osama bin Laden, who is a uh, known Muslim uh, extremist, I think it's fair to say, as the prime suspect, and perhaps others. Uh, That's the government's point of view anyway right now. And there's every indication that there's going to be retaliatory military action soon. And we don't know what the scope of that would be, and we certainly cannot foresee the consequences. And very often situations like this, these things spin out of control, and they are unforeseen consequences that actually nobody wanted. So we live in right now in a very volatile and perilous time. It may not uh, end in a big disaster, but we just don't know what's going to happen. So I think there are two questions for us. Now, as spiritual seekers, as spiritual people, first of all, what can we learn from this? Anytime there's a crisis, anytime there's adversity in something, uh, there's something to be learned from. And then the second question is, how are we as spiritual seekers going to respond to this? So I thought we'd just throw it open to a general discussion I would like to keep it limited from to try to try to limit it from a spiritual point of view. In other words, not get into a big political battle between whether Bush is doing a good job or not or whatever, and and keep it concrete and individual. What can we actually do ourselves, not what other people should be doing? So let's uh, let's just throw it open, and then um, after a while, I will tell you what I did. So, does anybody want to uh, talk about this? Yes.
0: Well, it's somewhat related. I think the key thing for me is how I feel about it. And what's touched me is we've we've seen terrorist activities around the world for many years. And one of the things that struck me most deeply is I have a deeper compassion for people in other countries who have suffered things like this for many years. I mean, it, it wasn't just there in a newspaper someplace overseas, it strikes home, and I don't know where this compassion is going to lead, but I don't feel as, uh, um, as isolated as, as the United States. I think Peggy's little sign of uh, one world indivisible is the kind of attitude I want to really bring home to my heart, so anyway, that's...
2: Well, we certainly learned one lesson, that we're no longer isolated by our oceans, our traditional defenses, and so we are part of one world, like it or not. That's just a fact. Anyway, yes.
0: Uh, I'd like to say that I very much agree with you that we have to understand Islam better. And uh, with understanding Islam better, you know, we, we may be able to avoid Islam turning against the West.
2: I think that's very true. And I want to say something about this because um, uh, I've made an effort over the last few years to understand Islam better myself. And uh, I've come to really appreciate and admire and respect Islam. Uh, But when we say understand Islam, I know there's a tendency in myself, and I think it's true of others, when we start to um, uh, be exposed to a different culture, a different tradition, There's this judgmental tendency to say, well, I don't like that. I didn't like that. I don't like the fact that women wear veils and so forth. And so we're not really uh, opening to understanding. We're already judging and we're rejecting. To understand another tradition does not mean you have to live it. You have to go join it. You have to go wear a veil. So to understand that if we really are going to do that, we have to be open to people doing things differently than we do. And we might not want to do that, but that doesn't mean that we have to condemn them or in any sense be their enemies. We have to be cognizant of that. I think very careful when we uh, learn. We really have to suspend our judgment, not throw it out the window, but suspend it. Yes?
4: Um, I absolutely agree with you, but I think we can also make the mistake of becoming a of being so politically correct that we become apologists for certain things i think we absolutely have to be clear what is going on with islam neither having a romantic ideal because we want to be good open-hearted liberals nor being you know uh totally prejudiced so we have to be we must have absolute clarity and that's what i feel is missing <laughs> Um And I just want to say what you t- you said you wanted to say. What people are doing in terms of their spiritual practice. Well, I'd already been doing a lot of spiritual practice on negative emo- emotions, so I just simply continued that when, when the shock and horror um, of the first week, I'd say, and just trying to be be there with that shock and horror, horror, and practice that. And now the shock and horror has turned more to anger, um, tremendous anger, not only against what has happened, but against people who, um, quite frankly, have different political viewpoints mm-hmm. me, for me. And now, again, to try to practice with that. I don't know what else to do.
2: I think that's a really good point about the clarity, and I think it's particularly important when it comes down to interpersonal relations. And I lived through an era of um, uh, racial prejudice and then the civil rights movement and then what we used to call white liberal guilt. And, uh, you know, to me, it comes down to, finally, the, the to be free of prejudice means you're free not to like someone. <laughs> you, you know, don't care what color they are, religion, you just don't like that person. And you don't, you're not confused about why you don't like them. You don't like them because they're stingy or insulting or something else. There's nothing to do with, you know, So when we get to that point where we can treat each other just as human beings and we may not like... You know, compassion and love doesn't mean you have to like somebody. It's very interesting. You can dislike somebody and still have love and compassion for them. Uh, So I I appreciate that, what you said. Yeah. Uh,
0: I remember about the third day um, after the disaster and I was watching television and, and a reporter came up to a woman who... Had lost her fiance in the in the tower, and she, he was interviewing her about her reactions and feelings, and uh, he expected there was a lot of talk of retaliation at the time, and he kind of expected her to agree with all of that. And she said that uh, her fiance was completely committed to peace, <coughs> and that his whole life was an expression of peace and that even though he had died, he would not want someone else to kill somebody else because he had died. And uh, so the reporter was very surprised and said, you mean, you just want to turn another cheek? And uh, she said, no, but uh, he, he's committed to a world community and to dialogue and to talking, uh, to looking into the hearts of of what is going on, and to acting from that standpoint of understanding instead of um, retaliation. And, and that I, I always go to that uh, woman's response in her own personal grief.
2: Thank she you. Said she
0: was also committed to that.
2: This is a time of testing, isn't it? With what we really believe.
5: Um, as far as spiritual practice, I was completely overwhelmed, of course, watching TV until I did Tong And Then I was just completely overwhelmed. I thought I was overwhelmed before, but for hours I just sat there and cried. I mean, tears just flowed down my face. And... and uh, When I finally came out of it, I was like, I didn't really know what to do. I mean, there seemed to be something I needed to do, you know? Well, I went to bed and I woke up and I had this vision of someone throwing a pebble in a pond, you know, and and the pebble was kindness and kindness radiates out from the pebble in little ripples. So I had this idea of of writing a a love note. and, And hopefully, people can take copies of that note and pass it on. And that will be like ripples in the pond. So this has been a perfect time to open my heart. Yes? Well, I found the two questions you have, what can you learn? And one of the things I was doing, you know, I was glued to the electronic media, just, just channel surfing, trying to find out all the information I could. And then I noticed all these emotions going through uh, my mind. And I, I uh, kept watching them and how they would change depending on who was talking. talking and what was happening. And then I... I, I did the Tonglen, and I just did it for days, and uh, that's why we haven't been blown up.
3: Oh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Teresa. You
1: <laughs>
2: You've also been working on humility, too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, let see, but in uh, my group last
6: week, all of the people came in. They're it, it, they're they're really working hard in seeing uh, that all is consciousness. <clears throat> and they all came in and said, with watching TV, and one of them is from New York, and, and her family is there, and the tears and and the upset. They had, like, that span until group last week when they realized that, underlying that, they felt a peace. And so, of course, I asked, why do you think that? And they said, because it blew away all of the stuff we were holding on to, all of our small, pe- petty mm-hmm. things that were... Up, up, uh, mm-hmm. upset about it. And, um, and it opened them to a compassion actually not only for the people who were dying but for the people who committed the, the act. so just by getting themselves let, letting go of the eye
2: one of the fundamental principles in the mystical paths is detachment Detachment does not mean stoicism or some sort of uh, cutting off of motion. It really means letting go. Letting go of all our ideas that there is any security here in this impermanent phenomena. There is none. That's a big lesson. And uh, we sometimes say, oh, I'm not attached to anything. I'm not attached to anything. And then suddenly, ba boom, this (laughs) happens. You find out what you're attached to very quickly. And that's a way of Uh, using this uh, a good example of using something like this for your own personal spiritual practice oh you're attached to your security you're attached to your safety oh you didn't realize all these things you're attached to now you see and so it comes out yeah you know it
0: this has been a big opportunity for me to see that even though I've spent years doing spiritual work, when I looked inside, I could still find my inner killer. You know, mm-hmm. I could still find all those places in me that hate and want revenge and want to get even. Um, and so it's, for me, it's been a real opportunity to, to find those places and meet them with love and know that they're part of me.
2: I think this is really important. I'm going to stop here for a minute, because um, Mm -hmm. in situations like this, thoughts will arise, thoughts of revenge Mm -hmm. and hatred, and emotions will will follow them. This is part of our conditioning. That's not something you can do anything about, that initial arising of those thoughts and, and that anger, that hatred, that thirst for revenge and whatever. And very often our reaction to spiritual people is to say, oh, no, I shouldn't be feeling this, and try to suppress it. We do that, and then it becomes stronger. And we we end up in a battle with ourselves, and then we just feel guilty, and then we think, oh, either the spiritual path doesn't work, or I'm so wicked, I can never, you know, whatever. We go through all our guilt trips and whatever. And if we are skillful, what we do is, and this is one of the... Most important reasons to practice meditation, so you have this spaciousness of, spaciousness of mind to recognize what is going on at the moment it is going on. When we have that, we see, oh, here's a thought arising. And we look right at it. And you say, oh, it's just a thought. I'm not identified with that thought. It doesn't mean that that's who I am. You see that thought arising. And if you allow that thought to dissolve, the emotion that arose with it, will also dissolve with it. If you identify with the thought and you start feeding it with another thought and another thought and another thought, pretty soon you're involved in a big story, the story of I going on in your mind, and you're working yourself up just the way you were watching some television show designed to work up your emotions. So if we can, um, the way we handle this skillfully is not to uh, pretend that we don't have these feelings, that we have these thoughts. But recognize what's going on. Okay, that's that thought arising. Okay, let that thought pass. Thoughts are impermanent too. Emotions are impermanent too. And if we don't keep feeding them and, and create that centrifugal force that, that, that out of which the story of I is born, it passes away. And then in that space, we find, just like Ani was talking about, something deeper we start to touch into a space of peace. That doesn't mean that we're going to go all around peaceful all the time, but that peace is the background of our activity, whatever activity we do. And out of that space of peace and calm, there's also a wisdom in that. And we find without even having to figure it out, we call it the wisdom of the heart, comes through. It tells us what we need to know to do. And the more we learn to trust that, The more we start to really feel like what uh, in many traditions call a kind of grace coming through, we then understand what it means to be the instrument of the divine. We don't claim it, we're not taking pride in it. Oh, I've traveled so far in the spiritual path and I've managed to rise above these other people. And, you know, no, it's we drop our conditioning, let it pass, and something else arises in us. So I think that's a really important point, because this is going to happen, and it's going to happen more and more. And, you know, this is exactly what television does. Television is just another form of drama. I used to work in the world of drama and show business, and we used to describe what we do in making movies for you guys and TV shows as we orchestrate the emotions of the audience. And believe me, as uh, the country gets more political, there's a lot more conscious orchestrating of the emotions of the audience going on, preparing us for war, preparing us for this. It goes on at the other side, too. There's a lot of emotion, orchestrating of emotions uh, right now going on in Islam, going on in Israel, going on all these, you know, everybody is looking to uh, jockey for what, you know, what's best for them. But we have to be very careful. Not that the emotions won't arise. Not that we're going to be cold and different. But, okay, there's the thought. There's the emotion. Is that really me? Is that really what I believe? Is that really who I am? Let it go and find out. Let it dissolve away. Have the courage to just let it dissolve away. Yes?
1: I I wasn't overwhelmed. Like I hear a lot of people saying they were when i heard when i turned the radio on that morning and heard that it happened it was like hearing the other shoe drop mm-hmm. <laughs> you know for 10 years it's been a, a something that not could happen was going to happen have we been told it was going to happen by the people apparently who did it mm-hmm. and when i heard it i thought well you know we could have either believed them at that time and guarded ourselves against it and maybe avoided it if we didn't do that, then it was going to be inevitable that just this sort of thing was going to happen. But when uh, the thing that I sort of worry about is, it, people want to say Islam and Christianity, and really it's it's just relatively small sect of people in a certain religion, and it doesn't have to be Islam. It could have been. It could have been Christianity. You know, I mean, there are people even within Christianity who have those extreme views and would go to those lengths, thinking that that was what they were supposed to do. They were going to do that, whatever religion they were in or whatever cause they espoused.
2: I think that's really true. But I want to just say one other thing. I certainly don't think all Muslims are terrorists by any means. But I do think that there is a lot of resentment and anger in the uh, Islamic world towards America, and this is something that we have to face. We have to look at why. We have to ask that question. Now, maybe it's maybe it's uh, unwarranted. Uh, a, a lot of the talk on the news: oh, they're just jealous of us because we have all this stuff. Uh, but uh, frankly, I don't buy that one. But and I'm not saying I'm not trying to tell you or anybody here the answer. But it does behoove us when a great portion of the world, you know, looks at America and uh, is that angry that they would actually, even a small section, would become that desperate and angry to do something like that. Do you see what I mean? So I think we really do have to look at, um, you know, our overall, uh, the way we treat other people in the world as a nation and as individuals and at every level. Uh, I heard a very interesting political commentator say, you know, uh, up until not too long ago, America was really admired in the Arab world because America wasn't as tainted as the other European powers with colonialism. You know, the British and the French and all that actually owned parts of the Arab world. You know, the French and Algeria's and the British and <coughs> Palestine and so forth, you know, and uh, Pakistan and all that. And we, we never were that kind of colonial power, you know, with a direct presence and governors, ruling people, all that. And he said, you, you you Americans have blown it. You had such goodwill. So what did we do wrong? I mean, you know, you always have to look then. So what part of this is our responsibility?
1: Yeah.
3: Well, on uh, a personal level, well, I've distanced myself from the media for years. I don't watch, you we know, don't get TV reception, and I don't listen to the radio, and I don't read the newspapers. And so I didn't see any coverage, but I work in a school, and I went through one kind of office, and there was the tower going, and I went through another office a little later, and there was someone coming out of a building. So even though I was trying to um, not see that stuff, it managed to, to come in. And then the other thing I have is uh, a son in the military, and he signed up for four years. I was very upset to hear when he was going in. He got a degree in biochem at St. Clark, and went straight into the infantry. And so I've been keeping my fingers crossed uh, that nothing kind of nasty is going to happen. But I just find on a personal level, there's me trying to keep away from all this stuff, um, and then on this very personal level, I'm very involved. And I've had all kinds of a kind of background feeling of this disease, and um, but also feelings of we had it coming. Uh, Anything that lowers the world's population um, with so many humans and we're doing such terrible things for the planet, I've had those feelings too. Um, I've sent money for relief at the same time, um, but I've, I've had... Uh, and that feeling of um, the nasty part of me, you know, what we... as a people, what we see out there is an expression of what's, what's in here but I, I feel like I'm starting to come to grips with um, allowing my son, um, as I felt like I've got to write to President Bush telling no no military action to save my son, um, mm-hmm. rather than let the course of events take their course and my son is in the middle, or could be in the middle of it, uh, or perpetrator of the news lot, that aspect too, mm-hmm. kind of just allowing it so that's where I feel like I'm working on that, is somehow having a peaceful allowing of what will happen to happen, but at the same time, I have, what kind of personal actions do I take? But I, I it worries me when I hear all this um, the flag waving stuff. And I can try to get a peaceful, flag, because I work in a school and with this, and still looking. For a peace flag, and you see all these flags for Easter, and um, mm-hmm. I think there'd be a peace flag, uh, not a peace flag, an earth flag. I not why I it peace flag. The one earth flag, no. on a flag, just the whole earth from
4: space.
2: <coughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I, I did want to say one thing about this. You know, uh, basically, with a, a few exceptions, I think human beings want peace. I mean, there are times young men get bored and the war seems exciting and so forth. Uh, they just need a little taste of it and they want peace again, most of them. Uh, but we cannot have peace without justice. And I'm all for peace, believe me. I used to drive through the countryside and having been, uh, because I'm a veteran, having been in Vietnam, and I used to watch the cows there munching on their grass and the lobe, that beautiful light in the evening, you know, and uh, the mountains in the background. And I said, this is peace. This is peace. And I have appreciation from it. I mean, an active appreciation. And sometimes, if some of you remember, I've said to you, you don't appreciate peace here, you see, because that's all you know. Then something like this happens. Oh, you long to drive through the countryside and just look at the cows munching. That, that's, you know, it may not be exciting, but it's, it's peace. But that cannot be without justice. It just cannot be. This is the struggle of humanity. It's not like we're going to have... You know, the perfect justice, I mean, everybody's idea of justice is a little different and so forth. But we, I think we have to just be really aware of that. In fact, I'm going to take this as an opportunity to segue into some uh, remarks. And I'm going to, uh, this has been a really great discussion. We can talk more, too. And I want you to interrupt me and ask me questions or comment on something. And I'm actually going to cut this rather short. i prepared something longer here. But uh, what I did is thought immediately of the of Gita. When this happened, because the Bhagavad Gita, for those of you who don't know it, is probably the most popular uh, spiritual book, scripture, if you like, or whatever, in India. It's not part of the actually the Vedas and all that, but the common people read the Bhagavad Gita. It was the book that Gandhi read every day of his life for instance. And the Bhagavad Gita is very ancient. It's actually a chapter in a larger work called the Mahabharata, which is a big epic, something like Homer's epic, you know. So it goes back at least 2,000 years, and it was probably an oral tradition beyond that, so we don't really know how far back in time it goes. But it's couched in a drama, a story, the teaching. And it begins with a prince named Arjuna. And uh, the, he's uh, faced with a, a this Great crisis, like we are. And the background is he is part of one side of a family, the Pandus, who are the rightful heirs to this kingdom. And there's another branch or clan of the family called the K- uh, Kauravas, and they are evil, I mean, given the context of the story. And they've usurped the throne and they've taken over, so there's going to be this civil war. So the two sides of the family are drawn up for battle, they're battle lines. <coughs> And Arjuna rides out between the lines in his chariot with his charioteer, whose name is Krishna. But Krishna is actually a divine incarnation, he's God in, in form. And Arjuna he looks out and he says, he's looking at friends, family, kinsmen, uh, teachers, uh, brothers. Uh, you know, these, this is a family feud. And he looks over at and he says, this is awful. He says, I don't want to fight this. Fight. What would Even if we won, what would be the glory of it? So what? We'd kill these people, but how could we ever enjoy our victory? And he goes on and on about this. And finally, he's, he's a great bowman. He throws down his bow and he says, I, I can't fight. He says, I'm, I'm just, uh, my heart's not in it. He's fallen to total despair and dejection. So then Krishna turns to him. Now Krishna's speaking as the divine incarnation. And let me read you this, because it's interesting what he says. It's kind of surprising. He says, Whence this lifeless dejection, Arjuna, in this hour, the hour of trial. Strong men know not despair, Arjuna, for this wins neither heaven nor earth. Fall not into degrading weakness, for this becomes not a man. Throw off this ignoble discouragement and arise like fire that burns all before it. He's telling Arjuna, stop this wallowing in this self-pity, this tendency to withdraw. You mentioned like, you know, we don't want to deal with this world. It's too much. It's too awful. Uh, and then uh, Arjuna asks him to, well, show me the way. He turns to Krishna and he says, teach me. What, what should I do? And then the first thing Krishna does is try to put the whole thing in perspective. And he says... We all have been for all time, I and thou and those kings of men, and we shall all be for all time, we all forever and ever. Interwoven in his creation, the spirit is beyond destruction. No one can bring to an end the spirit which is everlasting. For beyond time he dwells in these bodies, though these bodies have an end in their time, but he remains immeasurable, immortal. The eternal in man cannot kill, the internal in man cannot die. For the death of what cannot die, cease thou to sorrow. Now that sounds like a strong thing to say. I mean, really, no one's being born and no one's dying. But this is the testimony of the mystics of all traditions. In truth, there is no one being born and being dying. In truth, these are just forms of consciousness. And consciousness itself isn't born, isn't die, it doesn't die. It's, it's not that it goes on and on in time, it's eternal, it's beyond even time. Even time itself arises in consciousness. So, why does he start this way? It's, you know, here's Krishna's crushed in sorrow, despair, agony, and so forth, and, and uh, I mean, Arjuna is, and Krishna sounds like he's saying, well, don't worry about it, boy, you know, it doesn't matter. But that's not what he's doing. He's putting this in perspective. And we need that perspective. Otherwise, we will be overwhelmed with despair and sorrow. And this is a very uh, uh, a very valuable thing to remember. And if you have a practice to come back to. This is exactly what Eddie Hillison did in the concentration camp. And here's what she says. You know... If you don't have the inner strength while you're here to understand that all outer appearances are a passing show as nothing beside that great splendor inside us, then things can look pretty black indeed. So even in the midst of a concentration camp, she was in touch with that that which cannot be killed, just what Arjuna talked about, with that which is eternal in us. And if you are in touch with that, that gives a perspective. That doesn't mean nothing matters or anything like that. But this is our first remedy against despair, this truth. And then Krishna, uh, the next thing he does, he tells Arjuna, "It's, it's, it's not that this world is all meaningless just because no one is truly being born and truly dying. Quite the contrary. Again, he says something surprising. He tells him he's got to do his worldly duty. He says, think of your duty and do not hesitate. There is nothing better for a warrior than to fight a just war. Whoa. This is a spiritual teaching. This is a mystical teaching. You know, uh, often people think that mystics counsel a a rejection of life, a withdrawal of life. Life is evil. Life is bad. Uh, you know, we should pull away from it. We should uh, go out and live in a cave. I mean, that is a, a legitimate choice. If you've chosen to be an external renunciate, uh, then you are absolved of worldly duties. That means to be an external renunciate, you don't have family obligations, you don't have wealth, you don't have all those things. You're devoting your whole life to the the uh, technology, you might say, of meditation and so forth. And it is a valuable thing, and it's good to have people in the society who do that, but everybody can't do that. <laughs> And so if that's not your path, and you are in the world, then you have responsibilities and duties in the world. But, Krishna goes on to say, Do thy work, free from selfish desire, be not moved in success or failure. So he's saying, yes, do your duty in the world, but not out of self-centered desire. And not out of attachment to results. He says, set thy heart on thy work, but never on its reward. Work not for reward, but never cease to do thy work. So he's now giving us instructions of how we can walk a spiritual path fully engaged in the world. And that's one of the great things about the Bhagavad Gita and why it's still relevant today, particularly for us. Because many of these books are written for renunciates, external renunciates. They're written for monastics, monks, nuns, and so forth. The Bhagavad Gita is written for a warrior, and in that case, a physical warrior. Some people do read the the Gita and read all this as metaphor. I I frankly don't think it's metaphor. There's nothing in it that says it's metaphor, and given the time and place it came out of, uh, personally, I just take it for what it says. But that's not the end of it. Uh, This teaching you find in all traditions, the same teaching directed at At soldiers. And a lot of people think, for instance, Buddhism is a totally pacifist religion. It's not true. First of all, the Dalai Lama has said, it's not that you never can use violence. He said, violence is like really strong medicine. And you have to use it so carefully and exactly the right proportion. Otherwise, a little bit of an overdose, you kill the patient that you were trying to save. And here's something from a, a sutra, an old Pali sutra of the Buddhas. And a soldier named Simma asked the Buddha, does he forbid all resisting of, of evil, of aggression? And here's what the Buddha says. The Buddha says, He who deserves punishment must be punished. Yet at the same time he teaches to do no injury to any living being, but to be full of love and kindness. These injunctions are not contradictory. For whosoever must be punished for the crimes which he has committed suffers his injury not through the ill will of the judge, but on account of his own evil doing. The Buddha teaches that all warfare in which man tries to slay his brother is lamentable, but he does not teach that those who go to war in a righteous cause after having exhausted all means to preserve the peace are blameworthy he must be blamed who is the cause of war. The Buddha teaches a complete surrender of self, but he does not teach a surrender of anything to those powers that are evil. Struggle must be, for all life is a struggle of some kind. But he that struggles should look to it, lest he struggles in the interest of self against truth and righteousness. He who struggles in the interest of self so that he himself may be great or powerful or rich or famous, will have no reward. But he who struggles for righteousness and truth will have great reward, for even his defeat will be a victory. Powerful words. Now, notice two things about this. This insistence on the struggle, you struggle for what you think is right, but not to be attached to the results. Gandhi said this beautifully, said, you know, whatever I do, I act, but really the results are up to God. I can't control the results, so I'm not attached to the results. If I, if I knew that, that my good action would still not be able to prevent something disastrous from happening, I would still do my good action. I'm not doing it in order to get something done, especially something I want. I'm doing it because it is the good action, it is the compassionate. it is the loving thing to do. And the other thing is, is this is directed to a soldier. And, uh, so being a soldier itself is not evil, is what he's saying. You may be a pacifist, but even if you are a pacifist, this advice applies. And there's a wonderful scene in the movie of Gandhi. I think it was happened just after this massacre where the British soldiers massacred some of uh, Gandhi's followers who were peacefully assembling. Anyway, there was a, a council called and uh, this one guy was always counseling violence, was counseling, and he said, now we really have to resist. We have to do something. We can't just let this go. We have to fight back. And everybody else was trying to calm him, saying, no, no, we can't. We have to practice himsa and, you know, and Gandhi stands up and he says, no, he's right. We can't just let this go. We do have to do something. We have to resist. And then he devises a whole strategy, an active strategy of passive resistance. But it's not a pacifism that hides in the mountains. You see what I mean? It's a pacifism that is a struggle. It's part of the struggle. So this is not a call to arms and saying that you shouldn't be a pacifist. It's saying whatever we do, whatever our way of engaging the world, We are called to arise, to engage in the world. The world, from a mystic's point of view, is not some evil, terrible place. The Hindus call it Lila, the play of God, the divine play. The uh, Sufis call it uh, a divine self-disclosure. Everything here is a self-disclosure of Allah. It can't be evil. The, The Christians, and this is although there are some Christians who have been dualistic, this has not been the the, uh, position of the church. This world is good, both for Christians and Jews, because God created the world, and when he created it, he looked around and he said, Ketovah, in the Hebrew, which means it's good, all of it, it's good. So the world is not some evil mistake. And seeing from the proper perspective, it is, as the uh, Tibetan Buddhists call it, the great perfection. Along with its struggle, along with its relative goods and evils, that is part of its good. You see what I mean? This is a transcendent good, not a light against dark. But part of that drama of the world is a struggle of good and evil within that. And, and as spiritual people, we are not uh, called by our great teachers, mystics, to retreat, to hide. We are, like, uh, we are called like Krishna calls Arjuna, to rise up, to throw off our dejection, our wallowing on whatever our self-pity is, and to engage. So that is really the, the first and most important thing here. And then to engage without looking at our own selfish uh, uh, wants and needs and so forth. And as the way my teacher put it, I think it's a very good way of putting it, start to look To the good of the whole. What's the good of the whole? And the good of the whole is not just your good, but the good of you and your neighbors. And then the good of your community. And then the good of your country. And then the good of the community, uh, the world community at large. One world. Because that's what it is now. Like it or not, this is, if anything, this is what this has shown us. We cannot retreat from the world. The world will come after us. I mean, you know, it's not our option anymore. So in a, in, a, in a funny way, we have, you know, we're in a position where we no longer have that. Maybe individually you can go you know buy a ranch in uh, New Zealand and think you're going to escape, as a lot of people want to do. When What was the last disaster that was going to happen? Oh, the Millennium Crisis, right. Uh, but you won't escape in New Zealand, ultimately. Uh, but then Krishna, apropos of this, says, you see, there's also another war, and it's the inner war. There is a war that opens the doors of heaven Arjuna happy the warrior whose fate it is to fight such a war and then he goes on to uh detail this is what the this is what the rest of the Bhagavad Gita is about how to fight this inner war how to act uh, without selfishness how to act without attachment to the fruit of the action and then he uh, lists uh uh, the three classic yogas from India, the the way of the jnana inquiry, the way of uh, bhakti devotion, the way of karma, which is service. And then he, he also talks a lot about, uh, recommends dhyana meditation. So all the, the classic practices that you find in any mystical tradition are found here. Uh, and this, the whole rest of the teaching is really about that. I mean, the whole rest of the book is about this teaching, how you actually can engage fully in the world and still have your practice. And we find the same thing in other traditions. The Buddha says, one may conquer a million men in a single battle. However, the greatest and best warrior conquers himself. Rumi, great Sufi poet, writes, the prophets and saints do not avoid spiritual combat. The first spiritual combat they undertake in their quest is the killing of the ego and the abandonment of personal wishes and desires. This is the greater holy war. And I don't know what the original... I can't read the original Arabic, but I would bet you any amount of money that's jihad in there. Eddie Hillisum again. Here's what she says. Remember where she is. It's very important to remember where she is because she's much closer to our time and speaking uh, in a, a situation that is even worse than we are in at the moment. We may, of course, be sad and depressed by what is done to us. That is only human and understandable. However... Our great injury is the one we inflict upon ourselves. If one starts by taking one's own importance seriously, the rest follows. It is not morbid individualism to work on oneself. True peace will come only when every individual finds space within himself, when we have all vanquished and transformed our hatred for our fellow human beings of whatever race, even into love. So in the time of crisis, there's also the other tendency. One tendency to withdraw and retreat and so forth. And the other tendency is to say, I don't have time for my spiritual practice. I don't have time to meditate today. Oh, I don't have time to do this. you know, Because look what's going on in the world. They need me. But if you were out there acting... Without doing your spiritual practice, you're likely causing more harm than good. You're likely acting out of your old conditioning, your old prejudices. Your buttons are being pushed by what you see on TV and read the newspapers and what people around you are saying, up and down and so forth. So it's extremely important. Now's the time to uh, really take our spiritual practice seriously. They are not separate. Our struggles in the world for peace and justice and our inner struggles to overcome our own conditioning, our own selfishness, our own attachments. It's the same struggle. It's not different. I want to say one last thing, then we'll do some meditation here, uh, about America, because uh, most of us here are Americans. Mystics say the world that we live in is imaginary. And that, of course, includes the, especially the cultural worlds that we create for ourselves, the civilizations and so forth. And it's true of all civilizations, of all cultures. The laws we have are imaginaries, the distinctions we draw are imaginaries, the boundaries are imaginaries. Just to give one very basic one, property is imaginary relationship. You know, there I own this clock, and if you take it away from me, I'm gonna report you and have you arrested. But, you know, this is a game we play. It's a boundary we set up, just like a sporting boundary in a soccer field or whatever. There's nothing intrinsic that attaches me to this clock. It's purely an invention, imaginary. And so our cultures are are made this way. And There's one interesting uh, thing about America, and perhaps of all other peoples on the earth, we are most, not completely, but most, conscious that this is true about our nation. We didn't inherit intact, full customs and traditions that go back and are lost in time. There was a break in our history where we decided to invent ourselves. That was the American Revolution. And we looked back to times in Greece for inspiration and all that. But this was a big experiment. It had never been tried before. This idea that we might have a society where all men, and then ultimately women, because this is an ongoing experiment, you know, are created equal before the law. Other religions have always insisted all men and women are created equal before God. That's, that's true of Islam, it's true of Christianity, it's true of Judaism. Uh, but to be created equal among ourselves, to not have kings and princes and feudal classes and things like that, this was uh, unthinkable really unthinkable as a practical idea up until we came along. So, uh, and we shouldn't be so snotty about it because, you know, when we decided to make this experiment, we were taking a big chance. A lot of people didn't think it would work. And the jury's still out, by the way. You see, this is the point. It's an ongoing experiment. We know we are experimenting. We know we are imagining. And that gives us a certain amount of freedom. So we have our Constitution, and we've amended our Constitution over the last 200 years of our history. We amended first to get rid of slavery. We amended a second to give women the vote. We have been expanding this kernel vision, this idea, having to fight a civil war with everything else going on, you know, one step forward or two steps forward, one step back, and all that. If you're my age, in our own time, we have seen something quite remarkable. We have seen a turnaround in this country where the official uh, position, at least of half this country, was to approve of and enforce apartheid laws to the official position that that is no longer acceptable. In fact, there are laws against discrimination. It's been a remarkable change in a generation. And we should be proud of those things. But that you see, this is the point. It's unfinished. It's an unfinished business. And we are constantly called upon to continue imagining America at its best, because if we don't, the experiment will fail. We imagine America in both outwardly and inwardly. The Twin Towers were born out of imagination. They were born out of some architect's imagination. They were born out of a bunch of uh, scientists who, who worked out the laws of physics that could make that thing work. Do you know what I mean? They were born out of all the imaginations of the construction workers on the job when they said, well, we got to this problem. How are we going to do that? Somebody stood up and said, here's how we can fix it. All this came about because it was imagined and then it was manifested. That's the outer skin of America, our buildings and so forth. The same is true of our heart. We have to continue to imagine it and then act it out. And we have to act it out concretely not just say, oh, I pay lip service to it and so forth. I'm going to ask you now a question. What happens when you get on a plane next time you fly and you're sitting with uh, some people who look like Mideasterners, like Abdullah? And they're talking in Arabic because that's their native tongue. We think, oh, we're not prejudiced. We don't. You see, you watch what happens. No, you watch. and This isn't a scolding by any means. This is an opportunity. And it's what we uh, were talking about earlier. You're going to find your thought mind's going to say, well, gee, are these terror- terrorists? It's going to do that. It's hired to do that. That thought mind, you know, is so paranoid, anything that's threatening it, it starts thinking about. Okay, fine. And then you might feel fear arising. Okay, fine. Then if you let that keep playing, you will have the most miserable fight of your life. And if you're a spiritual seeker, not only will you have a miserable, terrified fight, you'll feel guilty about it all. (laughs) They don't do anybody any good. Now, if you recognize this thought is occurring, okay, fine, it's occurring. The situation is making it occurring. It's not my thought. Jennifer and I, uh, a year ago, went to New York, saw the old New York. And uh, we before we went there, we flew from Boston to uh, a little island called Mantucket, where my brother was living at the time. And you fly these little tiny planes, smaller than these puddle hoppers that go up to Portland, like these six people maybe crowded in. And when you check in at the counter, they ask you your weight. (laughs) And, uh, you know, then you start thinking about that, because first of all, it's not so much a problem for men, but women, you know there's something in our culture about putting your true weight down. And then, first of all, the woman has to decide, well, am I going to lie about my weight or am I going to endanger the plane? Because
1: these (laughs) planes are so small that
2: if they're overweight, they crash, they don't fly. Then that occurs to you, maybe some of these people are lying about their weight and you're going to be getting on the plane with them. Then we're sitting on the bench... And we're watching the passengers come. <laughs> and you see a big, oh God, oh God, I'm so okay, I hope not getting on my plane.
3: Now, this is funny,
2: and we, we, should, we should not lose our sense of humor in all this. But it's mirroring exactly what's going to go on getting on a plane with Mideasterners. Do you see what I mean? All these thoughts are occurring to us, and all these feelings are occurring to us, and we can't help them or those thoughts arising. We're not prejudiced against heavy people. But these thoughts are just coming, these feelings. So we could treat that with a little humor at the time. But if you watch these thoughts arise, and you first of all let the thoughts go, okay, the thought arises, all right, maybe it is possible. You know, you might get struck by lightning, the plane might crash for other reasons. So, okay, then you have that feeling left, that fear. That fear... Can be transformed. Transforming doesn't mean doing anything with it. Just drop the label. Stop thinking of it as fear. And it becomes attentiveness, alertness. Pure, just pure alertness. If we don't think, oh, that's fear. Oh, I shouldn't be being afraid. I don't like this feeling. Just leave it alone. And it is attentiveness, alertness. And that alertness will serve you in two ways. If by any chance these people are terrorists, you will be the first to know it.
1: <laughs> no, really,
2: you'll be alert. And, and not, not paranoid, just open and alert. But the far greater possibility is something quite different. The far greater possibility is that these people, especially in the foreseeable future, are going to feel very uncomfortable themselves for them. They're going to feel very frightened. They're going to feel, what uh, are these people around uh, me thinking? Is suddenly something going to happen? Every All the passengers are going to jump on us just because we're Mid Easterners, because that's the recommending now, you know, defend the plane, you know? So if I sneeze, is somebody going to think I pulled out a knife and then I'm, we're going to be attacked? Well, I'm serious. Put yourself in that position. It is probably tremendously frightening to fly if you were a Mid Easterner, uh, someone in Mid Eastern background, or a visitor, or a student, or whatever here. So this alertness, you pick up clues to this. Oh, you realize these people are uncomfortable. Oh, you take some little measure or step to be reassuring. That doesn't mean you go over and say, I, I know you're an Arab and I don't hate you.
1: <laughs>
2: you know, it's like uh, making a little conversation. You know, just are engaging each other at the simplest, most human ways uh, reassures and relieves people. Do you know what I mean? Oh, here's somebody just being friendly, just being ordinarily nice, just treating me like a human being. And that piece puts people at ease. And you know that from your own experience. We just look into our own experience, our own suffering, you see? So you don't want to get rid of that <coughs> heightened awareness, that which we read as fear. That's not the problem. You can use that for compassion, You can use that to be more sensitive to people around you, in this time, particularly people of Mideastern background. It's not white guilt or anything like that. It's clear-eyed seeing what is going on. So what we read now, what we feel now as maybe fear, as paranoia, as all those things, if we look closely, the reason it's uncomfortable, the reason it feels negative is centered on me. Oh, is something going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? Am I being good? Am I being spiritual? All that's I, me, my. If we let all that go, shoo, that fear turns into clarity, attentiveness, and we are ready for appropriate action for whatever it might be. So, shall we uh, close a little, Tonlin? I will... Do this as a guided meditation for those of you who don't know it, and this is be... Oh, I do want to keep this out here. We'll do a, a simple and uh, shortened version, and part of why we're doing this is that this is a, a teaching, so you can go out and, and do it more. You've heard several people here who said they've done Tonglin. That's one of the major ways that, uh, that they met this situation. Tonglen is a Tibetan term, and it can be translated loosely, sending and taking. And that means that you're taking on the suffering of others, and you are sending them love and compassion. Uh, sending and taking is traditionally done with three categories of people. Yourself, your friends and family and loved ones, strangers and enemies. So we'll tailor this sending and taking specifically to the situation, the crisis that we face today. And we'll start with ourselves and then we'll do it for victims of the, uh, bombings in New York and victims everywhere. And then for the perpetrators and we'll see what happens when we begin here. Uh, you're going to see that I begin with leading you into a kind of spaciousness. It's very important to get as much spaciousness before you begin. So if strong emotions do arise, you aren't totally overwhelmed. If no emotion arises in this, don't worry about it. There's no right or wrong to do here. It's just making ourselves available for whatever wanna comes up, for whatever is in our heart that wanna comes up. So if you're sitting there and you've been so emotional all week and you feel like you've been a roller coaster and just nothing's coming, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Okay. All right. Here we go. Uh, If anybody hasn't been here before, I ring the gong once to let us know we're beginning and twice to let us know when it's over. Let's begin just by breathing easily, let me take a few deep breaths just to relax, relax the body, put your attention on your breath, you're not trying to control it, just following your breath. breath as it goes out (coughs) turns around comes in goes out again As you breathe out, let your attention follow your breath out into the space just beyond your body, so you become aware not only of the breath, but the space in which your body rests. caught up in thought. Anxiety. Anger. If you have to remember anything from the past week to remind yourself of how you feel, do so. Relax the body, put your attention on your breath, you're not trying to control it, just following your breath. Following the breath as it goes out, turns around, comes in goes out again. As you breathe out, let your attention follow your breath out into the space just beyond your body. So you become aware not only of the breath, but the space in which your body rests. Just resting in this space, being aware of our breath, being aware of our body, not being distracted or caught up in thought, just being relaxed, but very aware. The space we're resting has no limits, no bounds, no end. I begin by allowing whatever you felt this week, given all the events that have happened, to arise. Whatever suffering you felt, if you felt fear, anxiety, anger, If you have to remember anything from the past week to remind yourself of how you feel, do so. Let whatever feeling is there just express itself as much as it wants to. Don't force it. Don't try to repress it. And I recognize that millions of other people have felt exactly what you're feeling. This suffering is not what divides you from humanity, it's what connects you to everyone else, because everyone else has been feeling this. Not only Americans in this particular week, but other peoples at other times, in other places, from the beginning of history down to recent times, have also experienced this kind of shattering of their lives, the peace, the security they knew, the happiness they dreamed of. doesn't matter if they're Palestinian, or Jews, or Chinese, or Japanese, or Africans, Europeans, South Americans. Eddie Hillison, thank God for allowing her heart to feel what it felt. these times. And we can be thankful, we can be grateful that we can connect into this mystery of suffering, this one particular uh, corner of it that we Americans have not really felt before. Now we know what it feels like, just like everybody else. just as we wish for happiness and for peace and to be rid of this suffering so does everybody else so now send out the wish the prayer the intention that you could relieve everyone else of this suffering Now let's open our hearts wider and feel what those who are more directly victimized by these events feel. Those who lost a loved one, a parent, a child, sister, brother, wife, husband, partner friend, maybe you've seen some stories on television, interviews, some people lost more than half of their colleagues at work, one fell swoop, gone. One fellow who was in one of the towers barely got out as the plane that was crashing into it was carrying his sister and her daughter. (coughs) Perhaps you've lost a loved one under different circumstances. You know how it feels. Perhaps this is a greater shock, more sudden, more traumatic, but you know how it feels. And now let's extend this, not just to Americans in this recent situation, but all peoples in all times who have lost the relative to war, to violence. Now you know how victims of war feel, how victims of violence feel. So generate a heartfelt wish, a prayer, an intention that they may be relieved of this suffering. Breathe out that wish on your exhale, out into that great space. Someone mentioned earlier that even these just seemingly insignificant wishes, prayers are like a pebble dropped in a pond, sends a ripple. Now yeah, let's open our hearts even wider. Try and imagine the suffering of the perpetrators of this crime. The anger, the resentment. You can touch touch into that. We all have angers and resentments. We feel injustice has been done to us. We want revenge. We want to get even. We want to show them. We want to make make somebody pay for what they did to us. How does that feel when we feel that way? That's suffering. It's the same. It's just a little magnified in the case of these hijackers. Magnified because the suffering is more intense. The anger is more intense. The resentment and bitterness is deeper. To feel such anger, you could walk on a plane and sit down and look at children. and know you're going to crash this plane. How cut off you are. How isolated you are by your suffering so let us send a prayer, a wish, an intention that all those from whatever country, from whatever religion, who are feeling so angry, so resentment, such resentment, so isolated and cut off from sections of humanity, that they could do this. Let us pray, let us send the wish that they would be relieved of this suffering, that they could get a little sense of more spaciousness, find more skillful ways, to address their grievances. And let us recognize what the great Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. Evil is not out there. No matter how horrendous it is not out there, the line between good and evil cuts to every human heart. So let us look to our own anger, our own resentment, and pray we can find skillful ways to address injustices that have been done to us. As you breathe out, send it out. This space of consciousness, this space of awareness, it's so great, it's got room for all these feelings. If we acknowledge them, if we allow them to reveal themselves, if we have the courage to look at them clearly, face them, not trying to push them away, not trying to suppress them, allow them to arise and pass, recognize they're universal. This is us. That space of awareness has room for that. And if we trust it, it has the wisdom to guide us. May all beings be happy, may all beings be relieved of suffering, may all beings find
5: peace.